Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Dangerous Demagogue. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 21st, 2016. When my wife and I walked the way of St. Francis this summer, the Italians we met were consistently positive about the United States. America is fantastic, gushed Rosa. It's my dream to go to America, said Massimo. There was one exception to this enthusiasm, though, the specter of Donald Trump. Well, we had Berlusconi as our prime minister for nine years, they tried to console us. Berlusconi, you might remember, is also a media mogul with a net worth of $7 billion dollars and he's been convicted of both tax fraud and child molestation. Some British cyclists we met in Italy compared Trump to their Brexit crisis, the withdrawal of the United Kingdom from the European Union. That is, a populist uprising of angry and disenfranchised citizens whom the political experts had discounted or ignored. In the end, political common sense did not prevail. It now feels long ago and far away when the Huffington Post said that it would cover Donald Trump only as entertainment and not as a serious political candidate. What was once back-slapping political buffoonery has now become an ominous presidential possibility. Trump is a dangerous demagogue, not because he's a Republican or because he's not conservative, but because his personal character, judgment, temperament, and total lack of relevant experience make him unqualified to be president. He has degraded our civic life, our public discourse, and our common decency. This has little to do with party loyalty, political ideology, or even disagreements about public policy. Rather, the good of our nation is more important than a victory for any party. I pray that the Republican Senator Lindsey Graham is right when he said that there will come a time when the love of country will trump hatred of Hillary. There's an emerging consensus among many public servants and thought leaders that a Trump presidency would be a disaster. I'm thinking, for example, of Ken Burns' commencement address at Stanford University on June 12th. I was also moved by the deep sense of remorse that Donald Trump's ghostwriter, Tony Schwartz, expressed to Jane Mayer in her New Yorker article of July 25th. And then there's the open letter published by over 120 Republican security experts on March the 2nd which I found especially powerful. They conclude, and I quote, As committed and loyal Republicans, we are unable to support a party ticket with Mr. Trump at its head. We commit ourselves to working energetically to prevent the election of someone so utterly unfitted to the office. And finally, on July 22nd, the Washington Post published a comprehensive and scathing critique of Trump as what they called a unique and present danger, 
to our nation's democracy, our constitution, and to global security. In the lectionary this week, God calls Jeremiah to speak to his nation's leaders, their prophets, priests, and king. He preaches what some probably thought was an unpatriotic, seditious, and judgmental message. Stop feeding our people reckless lies and false hopes. Stop betraying them with your delusional message of comfort. National disaster is upon us. Like a false dream, these dangerous leaders assure Judah that everything is fine, when in fact they're about to wake, awaken to a nightmare of national destruction. To speak so bluntly, writes Jeremiah, makes his heart break and his bones tremble. The Old Testament is remarkably negative about politics, no matter who reigns. 1 Samuel 8 narrates the emergence of Israel's centralized royal power. The people want a king like the other nations. Samuel objects to their desire to mimic the pagan nations. He goes to God in prayer, but then is rebuffed by the people. So he cedes to their request, but warns them of the harsh consequences to follow. The government will conscript their children for wars, make them domestic slaves, confiscate their land, and levy exorbitant taxes. Israel's first king, Saul, does all this and more. His successors are even worse. The political panorama of first and second kings includes the reigns of 40 kings and one queen in the 400 years from the death of David to Israel's exile to Babylon. Only two kings receive unqualified approval by the narrator, Hezekiah and Josiah. With monotonous regularity, over 30 times the narrator renders the ominous judgment that a king, quote, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, end quote. Instead of the glorification or celebration of political power, his history of politics is uniformly pessimistic. In his book, In God's Shadow, Politics in the Hebrew Bible, Michael Walzer, professor emeritus at Princeton, says that while the Hebrew Bible contains a lot about politics, it isn't really interested in politics. Rather, it presents us with what he calls a radical anti-politics. Since God is sovereign, observes Walzer, Caesar is secondary. In the language of the Gospels, we should never confuse the relative claim upon us to render to Caesar what is Caesar's with the absolute and unconditional claim to render to God what is God's. The prophets, says Walter, Walzer are poets of social justice, and their writings contain the most important form of public speech in Israel. But they're not political activists with any program. With their emphasis on divine intention as opposed to human wisdom, the prophets exemplify the Hebrew Bible's radical denial of the doctrine of self-help. The prophets, he says, disdain politics. 
In contrast to the Greek philosophers, the biblical writers never attach great value to politics as a way of life. Politics is simply not recognized by the biblical writers as a centrally important or humanly fulfilling activity. I thought about Walter when, after backpacking for 28 days in rural Italy, we walked around Rome for five days. We climbed to the top of the dome of St. Peter's, from which you enjoy a panorama of all of Rome. So much art and architecture, all that ancient history and fascinating archaeology, both sacred and secular. Early in its history, Romans were proudly self-conscious about their historical identity. Rome was the eternal city and the capital of the world, a global empire that would never be eclipsed or surpassed no matter what. Writing in about 200 BCE, the Greek historian Polybius asked, and I quote, who could be so indifferent or so idle that they did not want to find out how and under what kind of political organization almost the whole of the inhabited world was conquered and fell under the sole power of the Romans in less than 53 years, something previously unparalleled. Such exceptionalism both political and religious, remains a temptation and illusion for many Americans today. History has always proven it wrong. But at least some early Christians were, in fact, indifferent. They used two radically different and graphic images to picture the power and glory of the Roman state. In John's revelation, Rome was a dragon that stood in front of a woman giving birth in order to devour the newborn son who would rule all the nations. Rome was also a whore who was drunk with the blood of the saints. In place of radically relativized politics, says Walzer, the Hebrew Bible commends an ethic or a way of life, like Micah 6, 8 or this week's alternate reading from Isaiah 58. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Protect the weak, feed the poor, care for the widow, free the slaves, welcome the alien. The birth of Jesus signaled that God would bring down rulers from their thrones. In Mark's Gospel, the very first words that Jesus spoke announced that the kingdom of God is at hand. This alternative kingdom, he said elsewhere, would be not of this world. That doesn't mean that it's merely spiritual or relegated to a future age beyond history or in heaven. The kingdom of God that Jesus announced and embodied is what life would be like on earth, here and now, if God were king and the rulers of this world were not. The political, economic, and social, social subversions would be almost endless. Peacemaking instead of war. Liberation, not exploitation. Sacrifice rather than subjugation. Mercy and not vengeance. Care for the vulnerable instead of privileges for the powerful.
generosity instead of greed, humility rather than hubris, embrace rather than exclusion. This is a sort of republic, our res publica, or public thing, for which I hope and pray in our current presidential election. For books this week, I review an older book from the year 2009. The author is Daniel Berrigan. The title, Daniel Berrigan, Essential Writings. It's selected and with an introduction by John Deere. Mary Knoll, New York, Orbis Books, once again 2009. This book is 285 pages. Amidst the church's checkered history in relationship to power, politics, privilege, and wealth, the Jesuit priest Daniel Berrigan was a modern-day Amos or Jeremiah. Berrigan died last April 30, 2016, just shy of his 95th birthday, after which I decided to circle back to read his book of poetry called And the Risen Bread, and then this present anthology, Essential Writings. Both books were edited by John Deere, as this anthology makes clear, Berrigan bore witness on a broad range of issues. Racism, nuclear arms, the death penalty, and most famously, Vietnam. He also opposed what he called the abortion mills. But most of all, Berrigan was an unqualified pacifist. Thou shalt not kill. Choose life. The writings in this book remind us just how much we have gotten used to violence and accepted it as normal, a type of collective insanity that Berrigan protested. He reminded me of the desert monastic St. Anthony who said, A time is coming when men will go mad, and when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him, saying, You are mad. You are not like us. Yes, many people did, in fact, think that Berrigan was crazy. These writings include the personal accounts of how, in 1968, he and eight other activists stole 378 draft files of men who were about to be sent to Vietnam, dumped them into two garbage cans, poured homemade napalm on them, and burned them in the parking lot of the Catonsville, Maryland Draft Board. As the photographers clicked away, Berrigan spoke, and I quote, Apologies, good friends, for the fracture of good order, the burning of paper instead of children. Our hearts give us no rest for thinking of the land of burning children. Then, in 1980, he trespassed into General Electric's nuclear missile plant in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania poured blood on some warhead nose cones, then hammered away, reenacting the prophecy of Isaiah 2-4 about beating weapons of war into plowshares of peace. 
For these and similar activities, he and his brother Philip spent time on the FBI's ten most wanted lists. Periods of exile and hiding, not to mention significant time in prison. But being a prophet is not easy. Jim O'Grady once asked Berrigan if it was tiring to constantly work on the fringes, the fringes of the Catholic Church, of American politics, of polite discourse. He referred me to his old friend Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Worker, a volunteer community devoted to pacifism and serving the poor. Said Dorothy Day, she always thought of herself and her work as residing at the center of the Gospels, and so it was up to everyone else to move toward her. Berrigan was also a realist. Time after time in these writings, he addresses questions about the putative success of his actions. I was interested to read in his May 2nd New York Times obituary by Daniel Lewis about Berrigan's deep discouragements. Lewis writes, While Berrigan was known for his wry wit, there was a darkness in much of what Father Berrigan wrote and said, the burden of which was that one had to keep trying to do the right thing, regardless of the near certainty that it would make no difference. In the withering of the pacifist movement, and the country's general support for the fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, he saw proof that it was folly to expect lasting results. This is the worst time of my long life, Berrigan said in an interview with The Nation back in 2008. I have never had such meager expectations of the system. What made it bearable, he wrote elsewhere, was a disciplined, implicitly difficult belief in God as the key to sanity in survival. Realism, futility, and discouragement were Berrigan's penultimate words rather than his final word. In his 2009 book, No Gods But One, which is a chapter and verse study of Deuteronomy, he wrote, Nor is the fall the final judgment, as though we were bereft of all hope. No, there has occurred an intervention of God for healing and reconciliation, an intervention named Jesus. At the end of that book, he calls us to behave as though the truth were true. Similarly, in his meditation on First and Second Kings, the 2008 book, The Kings and Their Gods, he leaves us with his last word on the final page. Berrigan writes, One must urge to his own soul first a firm rebutting midrash. Bring Christ to bear. Read the gospel closely, obediently. Welcome no enticements, no other claim on conscience. Mourn the preachers and priests whose silence and collusion signal plain revolt against the gospel. Enter the maelstrom, the wilderness. Flee the claim that would possess your soul. Earn the blessing. Pay up. Blessed and lonely.
and powerless and intent on the master, and, if must be, despised, scorned, locked up. Blessed are the makers of peace. Once again, the title of the book, the author is Daniel Berrigan, and the title of the anthology is called Daniel Berrigan, Essential Writings, from 2009. Our film review this week is by our music editor, David Werther. The title of the film is called Bono and Eugene Peterson, The Psalms the year 2016. Bono in Eugene Peterson, The Psalms, is an engaging conversation about the Psalms. But more than that, it's a picture of a friendship that crosses generations and cultures. The Petersons, Eugene and his wife Jan, are decades apart from Bono in age and culturally far removed. This comes out clearly in the first part of the film, which explains how Bono and Eugene Peterson got connected. Initially, when one of Peterson's Regent College students told him that Bono had mentioned him in an interview in Rolling Stone, Peterson's response was, who's Bono? Years later, by the end of a long lunch with Bono, prior to a U2 concert, Peterson knew they were companions in the Christian faith. Professor David Taylor of Fuller Theological Seminary guides the conversation between Bono and Eugene on the Psalms at the Petersons' home on Flathead Lake, Montana. For Bono, it is the brutal honesty of the Psalms and range of emotions that set them apart. When emotions are wide-ranging, the question of violence is inescapable, and that triggers Peterson's comments about the imprecatory Psalms. He says, we need to find a way to cuss without cussing. And the imprecatory psalms surely do that. We've got to have some way in context. And the context is the whole Bible and the whole Psalter to tell people how, how mad we really are. In the preface to his message translation of the psalms, Peterson comments, prayer is elemental not advanced language. It is the means by which our language becomes honest, true, and personal in response to God. It is the means by which we get everything out in the open before God. Kudos to Fuller Seminary and Professor David Taylor for putting this friendship out in the open, and in doing so, opening up the Book of Psalms. Once again, a film called Bono and Eugene Peterson, The Psalms, 2016. And finally, for poetry, Shamus Haney, Nobel Prize winner in literature back in 1995 from Northern Ireland. He was the oldest of nine children. This poem is called Miracle, and as you listen, you'll realize it's a riff 
on the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, in the miracle of the man who was let down through the roof, the paralytic who was healed by Jesus after he was let down through the roof. Shamus Haney, miracle. Not the one who takes up his bed and walks, but the ones who have known him all along and carry him in. Their shoulders numb, the ache and stoop deep-locked in their backs, the stretcher handles slippery with sweat, and no let-up until he strapped on tight, made tiltable and raised to the tiled roof, then lowered for healing. Be mindful of them as they stand and wait for the burn of the paid-out ropes to cool, their slight light-headedness and incredulity to pass, those who had known him all along. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 21st, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.